Would you turn in your Bible this morning to the book of Revelation chapter 3? Revelation chapter 3, as we continue in uh, this study of the letters from Jesus Christ to the church, not only then, but today. And so we have here a letter from Jesus to Harvest Church. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to read verse 7 through 13. Let's give our attention to God's word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The title of my message this morning is uh, The Church That Jesus Loves. Uh, 24 years ago today, I was ordained and installed as the pastor of uh, a lovely uh, little church uh, called Harvest in uh, Wyoming, Michigan. And uh, my goal from the beginning was uh, very simple. I just wanted to be a church that Jesus would commend. Uh, At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter much what the world thinks about Harvest Church. End of the day, it really doesn't matter much what we think about Harvest Church. At the end of the day, what matters is what Jesus thinks about Harvest Church. And that's really all that matters. Uh, We saw last week, as we studied the uh, letter to the church in Sardis, that it's possible to have a great reputation with the world, with people, and have a lousy reputation with, with Jesus. Uh, He says, I know your works, Uh, you have a name for being alive, but you are dead. And so Jesus had nothing good at all to say about the church in Sardis. He was not impressed with their reputation. And the question that um, sort of haunts me as, uh, as I read these letters is, and particularly this letter, is then, well, what does impress Jesus? It is utterly possible for us to go about doing church, think we're doing just fine, when Jesus would have a different verdict. What does impress him then? What, what gets Jesus' attention about a church? What moves Jesus' heart uh, about a church? Because he loves, clearly, he loves this church in Philadelphia. There are no rebukes in this letter. Only 
commendation, only praises. Most of the letter is taken up with promises, things that Jesus promises he's going to do for them and be for them forever. So I, I just want to know what, what's their secret? What, what was it about this church that, that Jesus delights in, that he finds attractive and, and praiseworthy? Because those are the things that we're going to want to focus on. We're going to want to highlight those things, embrace those things, prioritize those things. Whatever else we're doing, I want to, right, wouldn't you agree that we want to be doing the things that Jesus loves, that Jesus finds attractive? Well, the blessing of this letter is that we're told specifically things that Jesus loves. There's three things that Jesus mentions about the church in Philadelphia. These are things that delight the heart of Christ. These are things that Jesus loves to praise. These are things that Jesus promises to bless. Boys and girls, if, I, uh, if your parents said to you, you can have whatever you want. You just have to do three things. Uh, wouldn't you want to know what those three things are? You might think they must be awfully bad things because um, right, it's going to cost a lot to get whatever I want. But, but you'd want to know what they are. Well, Jesus gives us three things, and they're not bad things at all. They're beautiful things. And promises magnificent things uh, to those who keep these, who, the churches that is characterized by these traits. So let's just jump into the text. What are the traits that Jesus loves? We're a church. We should want to know these things. What, what is it about the church of Philadelphia? The first trait that we note that Jesus mentions is the trait of weakness. I know your works. I know that you have but little power. That's, um, that's surprising maybe. And it, in stark contrast to the church in Sardis, which had a reputation for being lively and capable, Jesus says to this church in Philadelphia, I know that you, are, uh, you have little power, microdunamis, not capable. And he says it, the way he says it gives us a sense that Jesus is, uh, he's not rebuking them at all. He's, he's acknowledging something that they've already acknowledged to him. Something they've already confessed. They've admitted this freely. We're weak. We have little power. Exactly what you find in the church in the book of Acts as they're being oppressed. They just admit up front, Lord, we don't, we don't have any power. But you do. And so they engage the power of God. There's something about that combination of, of um, weakness that freely admits its uh, its weakness and calls out in the name of God. Jesus loves that sort of weakness. It's interesting in these letters to the uh, churches, these seven letters, there are two letters that have um, only rebukes, and that's the letters to what we would maybe consider the churches that were the most significant and capable and had a reputation, Sardis and Laodicea. These are churches that thought of themselves as being capable. They get no praises, only rebukes. The two weakest churches, the suffering churches, get nothing but praise. Smyrna and Philadelphia. Jesus delights in confessed weakness. Remember, his disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus takes a little child, sits him down in his lap in front of them, and says, I promise you, unless you become like this little child, you will never enter the kingdom of God. 
Jesus loves little children. He loves the, the, their dependence, their, their free admission of that truth. God opposes the proud. He opposes the capable. He gives grace to the humble. This is the one I esteem, God says. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Jesus loves those who say, Lord, I'm weak. I, I'm not able. I'm not sufficient. I'm helpless. Please rescue me. I've had the joy last couple weeks, uh, two men separately have just shared with me. Uh, they've been um, members of the church all their life, but they feel like they have just recently been converted. Well, those are stories I want to hear. So uh, when I ask, well, what happened? How? What's going on? The answer is they admitted their weakness. They, um, they joined the James Fellowship Group, and they humbled themselves and acknowledged their, their, their sin and their need for help, the fact that they couldn't help themselves. And, and Jesus responded. When we take the posture of, Lord, we can't fix ourselves, we cannot change ourselves, we cannot help ourselves, we are dependent people, Jesus loves to respond to that confession Whatever harvest will accomplish for God in the years ahead, it will only truly be for God if it happens through an embrace of our weakness, a reliance, and prayerful embracing of his strength. God is not looking for us to become a, a, a church that goes from our strength to our strength. But growth will look like an, an increasing awareness of our inability as we recognize what we're up against. We're not waging war with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. We're, we're up against a, a devil who wants to destroy us, and he wants to destroy our children. And we don't have the power to protect them. A nice family and a nice church is not sufficient to protect your children from the devil, much less yourself. We need Jesus. There's no way we're going to embrace, uh, uh, engage a community and, and see people come to faith in Jesus Christ uh, without depending on him. Friends, this is why Jesus loves prayer meetings. This is why Jesus loves prayer meetings. When the church comes together and corporately confesses our weakness and begs for God's help. Just want to encourage you. Every last Wednesday of every month, we gather to pray. Um, the vast majority of you aren't there. And this is not a rule. It's not a law. So what kind of church are we going to be? Are we going to be a church that freely, happily confesses our weakness and calls on the name of the Lord with confidence that God's power is perfected in weakness? It's a great invitation for us here. Secondly, they were faithful. Uh, you've kept my word. Uh, Jesus mentions this in verse 10 as well. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. So in the context of their weakness, they cling to the word of Jesus. Uh, the church in Sardis, remember, had forgotten what they had heard and received. They'd forgotten the gospel. They'd forgotten the message. Not this church. Philadelphia is serious about the word of Christ. They cling to the gospel of Christ. They're being transformed by the power of the word as they study it and as they speak it and apply it. They're holding fast to his truth. Jesus loves churches that are willing to say, this is the 
rule for faith and life. And we're going to act like it's the rule for faith and life. We're going we're we're to believe that Jesus himself speaks to us in the pages of Scripture. And so we're going to give our attention to the Scriptures. And we're going to give our attention to preaching and teaching and receiving Bible studies and, and small groups and Sunday school uh, because we want to know what does God tell us about himself and about Jesus and about who we are, how we're to live. We want to be a church that's, that's saturated with the word of God. That's the church that Jesus loves and delights in. We see it all through the letters to the seven churches. <coughs> I remember when uh, Moses uh, was in, speaking the law, God's law, God's covenant with the Israelites. And, and Moses said to them, listen, th- these words are your life. By these words you will live. And if you abandon these words, you will die. That's how serious this this is. And so Jesus calls us to hold fast to the word. Hold fast. Remember he says, hold fast to the the crown of life. Uh, This this is the the, the path to that, that crown. The word of God itself. But I love what in verse 10, notice... Uh, because you've kept my word about patient endurance. There's a translation um, discussion here, and and G.K. Beale suggests that the my should not be attached to word, but to patient endurance. So it would read, uh, you have kept the word about my patient endurance. And and that's that's a nice, I think that's a nice translation. It means that the word that the church keeps is the word about Jesus. It's the word about Jesus' life and death, his obedience, his patient endurance, uh, his victory for sinners. In in other words, our message to the world isn't just that we believe the Bible is true. Our message is that we believe Jesus is true. That we believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Our story is not our orthodoxy. Our story is Jesus. And there's a difference there. There's a big difference there. I, um, I got a great email this past week from someone who uh, sent me this uh, observation and question. This person said, I am deeply compelled to share Jesus with my neighbors, and I am doing so. The biggest demonic voice that rises above all others is this. How can you with integrity and with no shame or ducking your head or lowering your eyes say with joy, hope, and absolute certainty that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life when you don't have it together yourself? How can he be the answer when you struggle with not having complete victory, continued trials, new struggles, unholy desires, etc.? That's a great question. How can we with integrity, with no shame, with no lowering in our eyes, say with joy, hope, and absolute certainty that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life when we don't have it together? When someone would say, we doesn't, doesn't really look like that in your life. Well, I think the, the answer is found in the question. Uh, I can say with utter integrity and without ducking my head that I am a great sinner who is still in need of a great Savior. Full integrity, I promise you. If you want evidence that a man cannot possibly save himself, you're looking at it. And so we can say with Paul, uh, we have not obtained all this. 
So often the good that we would, we do not, and the evil that we would not, we do. Wretched people that we are, but thanks be to God who gives the victory in Jesus Christ. Our story, our testimony at the end of the day is about Jesus. It's about Jesus' patient endurance, Jesus' obedience. Now that will be making a difference in our life. But what people need to hear primarily are not your victory stories, but Jesus' victory story. That's the gospel. And praise God, that means we all have a story to tell. We all have a message for this lost world. There is a Savior for great sinners. We are exhibit A. Thirdly, they did not deny his name. So in the face of this opposition, uh, this church refuses to compromise with society. What is society? What is, what is the pagan world of Philadelphia want the church to say? They want the church to say, uh, we believe in Jesus, but we recognize Jesus is our way to God. Jesus is one way of, of uh, communicating with the divine. We recognize there are other ways of doing that. If the, if the church would simply be willing to allow Jesus to be one of the gods, they would have had no quarrel with the world or the world with them. Not much has changed. But they did not deny Jesus' name. And so they maintained the exclusivity of Christ as the one Lord, the only way and the only truth and the only life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. They would not deny the name of Jesus as the name above all names. And friends, we are faced with that as a church. We'll be continually faced with that as a church. Uh, someone was just recounting me recently, they were at a funeral of a, of a church that was once reformed and um, a professed Christian had passed away, but this man said, the thing that struck me about the funeral service was the pastor talked about God and about love and faith and hope, but I'm not sure he ever mentioned the name Jesus. No Jesus. It is very easy to do that. And people will nod and smile Let's not be that church. As we grow in, in obedience and faith, one of the evidences will be an increasing delight in the name of Jesus. And not just publicly in our confessional statements, but in our conversations with one another. We'll talk about Jesus. Uh, when, we, when we go about our life, when we think about uh, the movies that we watch, the name of Jesus will matter. This is something the Lord's just been convicting me about. I, I, I just, I've, I've never watched a movie where the name of Jesus is taken in vain and walked out feeling, you know, that was a great story. Um, I, know, I know Jesus' name was taken in vain, but, but the story was worth it. The experience was worth it. I've never, I've never had that experience. I think we just become callous to it. Do you know the world uses the name, the, the, the name of Jesus Christ, the most precious name in the world, as a curse word? Routinely? And we get comfortable with it and numb to it? See, as we're growing, as the Spirit is, is, is at work in our life, there's going to be an increasing delight in the name of Jesus and a desire to speak that name and not be ashamed of the name of Jesus in the midst of a mocking world. 
And this is, again, Jesus loves churches that love his name. And that love his name not just when they gather together, but love his name when they're gathered with their families at home. And love his name when they're at work. And love his name when they're, when they're going to the movies. And love his name when they're uh, engaged in the community. That we're, we're Jesus' people. That's, that's the kind of church Jesus loves. A church that is unashamed, unabashedly Jesus' people. It is, it is a very possible, friends, just so we know. It's possible to be uh, orthodox, reformed, but not really, end of the day, be Jesus' people. I, I don't want to be that church. I don't think you do either. I want to be a church that Jesus commends. And Jesus commends churches that do not deny his name, but embrace his name. And Jesus gives us fantastic motives to drive us into these traits. He promises this church just magnificent things. Notice assurance of an open door to heaven, glory. Have you ever been locked out of a room that you dearly wanted to get into? Maybe you've been locked out of your car and your little child was in the car. And you, you're desperate to get into that car. And when someone finally comes and unlocks the door, you are profoundly grateful. Well, there is a door, friends, that stands um, between sinners and glory. And it's the most important door in the whole world. It's the most important door in your life. Your eternal destiny depends on whether or not that door gets opened. Jesus says in Luke uh, chapter 13 that um, there will be... Uh, he, he commands us, strive to enter the, the narrow door. For many, many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. If you think about jo uh, Noah and the ark, and he's building the ark, and there's one door. And nobody's interested in going through that door until the rain starts to fall. And then they're pounding at the door, begging to be let in. Jesus says the same about eternity. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us and he will answer to you. I do not know where you come from. That's, that's just the reality that Jesus sees. Everyone's coming to that moment. And Jesus tells this little church, I've set before you an open door. He's assuring them the door has been opened to them and it will stay open. That's why he reminds them that he has the key of David and uh, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. The sovereign king has opened the door into eternity, into the banquet feast of heaven, and it will never be closed. Now, <clears throat> imagine Jesus just saying that to you personally. I want you to know that the the door of heaven has been open for you. And I promise you, it will never be closed. That's such beautiful assurance. I mean, what would you be afraid of in life if, if you knew to the marrow of your bones that, were, that was true? Well, friends, that's exactly what Jesus says to us. I've, I, I, I hold before you an open door. To, to, if we're willing to hold fast to Christ and, and for, if we're willing to... Um, to not deny his name and confess our weakness and need of him. Jesus wants us to know there's an open door. It, he has opened it, and no one will close it. He, Christ wants his church to have the full assurance of everlasting glory with him. So let, let's just receive this as an amazing message from, from Jesus. 
an open door that can't be closed. And then there's three other, um, in your outline it says uh, assurance of, of, of victory and safety and intimacy. I want to change that a little bit. I think maybe just for memory's sake, Keller, I remember Tim Keller once saying that the three, that the idols that people create um, usually wrap around three issues in our life, security, identity, identity, and significance. That those are the things that every human heart naturally hungers for and longs for, security, significance, and identity. And I think those three, without, without trying to squeeze this, this together in an unnatural way, are all addressed in the following promises. Notice verse 9, this promise of significance before God. So he says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. We just need a, a note. Uh, Kevin Young pointed this out. Jesus is not being anti-Semitic here. He's being anti-sin. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. But you see, this synagogue in Philadelphia is proven, they're proving their spiritual heritage like the Pharisees did because they're opposing Christ. And so this little church in Philadelphia is being mocked, being scorned, derided. I mean, they look so pathetic in the eyes of the world. They're so small. They're, here's this. You're, you're living in the days of the power of Rome. You're living in the shadow of the wisdom of Greece. You're living right there with the tradition of the Jews and the majesty of the pagan temples. I mean, who are you? This small little group of people who think you found the way. That you have the truth. I mean, seriously. Look around. People are saying exactly that to the church today. Well, Jesus wants them to know that it doesn't matter what the world says. One day, the world is going to recognize what God says about the church. When God says that they will know that I have loved you, there is not a more significant statement to, to, to be found that you've been loved by God when the world stands before God and sees the reality of who God is. They recognize that, that utterly nothing matters. Nothing is significant compared to the significance of being named, claimed, loved by God. And Jesus says that's exactly what is true for his church. He promises security. Verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. There's going to be an hour of trial. Judgment is coming. Jesus talks about it all the time. He, he's always talking about the day of judgment. And he's going to be the judge. But Jesus wants this church to know that in that day of judgment, they will not experience any harm. He, the, the Savior, is their shepherd. He will keep them. That's such a rich biblical word. He will keep them. And so he's reminding this, this little struggling church, you don't need to worry. You don't need to be afraid. There's no harm that can come to you. We worry about all the wrong stuff, food and shelter and clothing. Jesus says, don't worry about that. I will keep you. You can lose all of that, but you have eternity with Christ. You lose nothing. So significance and security and then identity, verse 12. 
The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. So that, that just means that they are going to be integrated in the household of God, the place where God dwells, and they will never be cast out. The glory of God will be in their midst forever. I, I, this is real. This is not, it's not a metaphor. The glory of God dwelling in, with you and in you and, and you in the presence of God forever. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, my own new name. Do you see it? My, 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 my. Four times. The name of my God and the city of my God, which comes from my God in my own new name. Jesus is saying to you, friends, everything I have, I give to you, including my name. When do, when do uh, we give names, our name? We, we give our name to our children. We give our name to our spouse. That's about it. We give our name to people that belong intimately to us. Jesus wants you to know that he is promising to give you his name. And the name of his God and the name of the city of God, that means that you belong as a citizen of eternal life. And these promises, friends, are, are meant to empower us in the real life that we live today in Wyoming, Michigan. The actual life experience that we have today, these promises are meant for the church. They're meant for us. So when naming the name of Jesus looks like it will cost us things, reputation, promotion, maybe even property at some point, maybe our life at some point. We can delight in, in the promise of Jesus Christ that we will not suffer any spiritual harm, that we will be kept safe. Uh, we, we, when the world starts closing its door in our face, and they will, and they are, um, I just encourage you, go online and just kind of look around. What does the world think about the church? And then pray. Because increasingly in our Western culture, the church is the problem, particularly the white evangelical church. We are the problem. And the world is angry about it. So it's, it's, it's time to, for, to think about the, the, the promise of Jesus that as the world closes its doors in our face, Jesus promises us he's opened the door that matters eternally. And when, when, when we're mocked and ridiculed, as we're, what's going to empower us, you see? What's going to move us out of our security, our safety, our comfort zones, and engage a culture when they don't like us? We're going to be absolutely convinced that Jesus loves us. That the smiling face of God is on us. That, that God publicly will vindicate us. That, that we, we have nothing to lose. No harm to fear. Except a failure to be the church. That's the thing to fear. That we, because of our fears, because of our unbelief, because of our worldliness, simply settle for something less than the church that Jesus loves. Let me quote with the, uh, close with this quote from David Wells. He says, the moment of the church's greatest influence, and in fact, um, its greatest moments, have not been those when the church reached for worldly power, or adapted to its culture, sought to be relevant, but when it sought to be authentic. The church has been most influential in those moments when its contrition reached down deeply into its soul. When its known weakness, in its known weakness, it cried out to God from the depths 
when it sought to live by his truth and on his terms, and when it sought to proclaim that truth in the world, when it was willing to pay the price of having that kind of truth, and when it was willing to demand of itself that it live by that truth, when it sought above all else God in his grace and glory, at such moments it has soared, and out of its own inherent weakness found extraordinary strength and power. When all of these things have been present, then the church has been the church. Friends, let's, let's, let's strive to be a church that Jesus commends, and nothing else ultimately matters. A church that Jesus commends. We are, we are always moving, changing, morphing, growing, one way or the other. Right, one direction or the other. We are not, by the grace of God, the same church we were 24 years ago when I started. Not, and by the grace and power and goodness of, of God himself. We've grown, not just numerically. Anything can grow numerically. We, we, we've grown, I think, in obedience. I think we've grown in sense of mission. I think we've, we've, we've grown in some beautiful ways of ministering to each other. But we're just starting. In 24 years, I'll be 79. I'd like to preach another sermon when I'm 79 and talk about what has God done in the last 24 years. And here's some things I hope we could point to, that God has helped us to be a church that Jesus commends, that, that we have become an evangelizing church on purpose, without shame, that we're speaking Jesus' name in our community. We've become a church that's a praying church all over the place, in our, in our families, our small groups, uh, our Bible studies, and as we come together as a church, that we are gladly embracing our weakness and, and praying specifically for God to do specific things for the furthering of his name for his glory by his power. We're, be, we're, we're growing as a discipling church where our children are learning, uh, not just Jesus in a generic sense, but the Jesus of scripture and what it means to believe him and to follow him. We're a church that's willing to sacrifice and suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. That our priorities are not being shaped by the culture in which we live, but the, but the, the kingdom to which we belong. And we're becoming a church that Jesus loves, that Jesus commends. Let's pray for that together. Let's pursue that together. For the glory of Christ, amen. Oh, God in heaven, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for this letter to us. We're just, we're just people with all of our weaknesses and sins and failures and fears. But by grace, we have become your people. And you are making us something beautiful and glorious and something honorable and true, something significant. And we are profoundly humbled. We get to do this together. Oh, Lord, forgive us for all of um, our self-centeredness. Forgive us for thinking the church is about us and for us. Uh, forgive us for being willing to settle for so much less than the mission that you've given to us. Forgive us when we've made it about our name, our reputation, not Jesus. Jesus, we want to be a church that you commend, a church that you delight in, and that can only happen, Jesus, as we look to you, as we trust in you, as we wait on you. And so we, Lord, do that just now. And I, I pray that your spirit would come and over and over again direct our hearts and minds to the things of Christ. That we would, Lord, be making sacrifices right now, how we spend our money, 
how we entertain ourselves, what we dream about, what we pursue, because Jesus is becoming more and more precious to us. I pray, Lord, that um, you would give us the opportunity to have a significant impact in this community and in our nation, even around the world, for the name of Jesus Christ, that we could live this one life that we've been given for eternal things, eternal blessings. And we thank you that you promised them to us as we look to you, as we wait on you, as we humbly acknowledge our inability and trust in your strength. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray you bless Harvest Church, your church, for your namesake, for your glory, and for our eternal joy. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to